what's really fun about data is that it continually changes. It changes in its context, it changes in its challenges. It's changing our planet and it's endlessly innovative. It's one of the reasons that I find it endlessly fascinating. Welcome to The Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Joanne Stonier loves her role. After all, when you're the Chief Data Officer for MasterCard, the opportunities to create real change are plentiful. But Stonier knows that her work is about more than just data privacy and governance. It's about aligning the company's data strategy to business goals and impacting the organization in a positive way. And of course, making sure that all 725 million of MasterCard's credit card holders are protected. With a career rooted in privacy, a degree in law, and a background in interior design, Stonier is not just a well-rounded CDO. She's a visionary. On this episode of The Data Chief, Joanne joins Cindy for an inside look at data's impact on people, data ethics, and the importance of building trustworthy models. Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people from companies like Walmart, Hulu, Schneider Electric, Cloud Academy, and Mercado use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. You can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. This week on The Data Chief, I'm pleased to welcome Joanne Stonier, Chief Data Officer at MasterCard. Joanne, welcome. Thanks for having me, Cindy. I'm happy to be here. Great. Joanne, where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from New York, uh, where our offices are located. Our headquarters is in Purchase, New York, just in Westchester County. And we also have an office in uh, our tech hub is in New York City. And we also have a big tech campus out in St. Louis. And we're actually global around the world. So but I'm in New York today. Yeah. So not far from me in northern New Jersey, Westchester, what a beautiful place. And Joanne, you are, I have to say, one of the most inspiring CDOs with the diversity of the work that you do, but also the impact with MasterCard and some of the things that you've pioneered. So 13 years at MasterCard, but before that, also in financial services at American Express. Tell us about this journey. Thank you for saying that. I think that there are lots of impactful CDOs. I think that the the job is evolving. Um, I've been really fortunate, right? I've been in financial services. I think financial services is a fascinating um, industry and sector. I think it's, uh, you know, it helps our economies hum. And I think uh, we saw the financial impacts of COVID over the past uh, year and a half and and what, the, and what the financial sector can bring to bear to, to provide assistance and understanding. Um, and I think that data is part of that understanding. Uh, yeah, I, I was at Amex for a fair amount of time. I, I left Amex um, uh, after being their privacy officer. I, I had a long career there doing M&A work. I was the assistant to their chairman, um, who was Harvey Gallup at the time. 
I had a great career there. I wound up at MasterCard as MasterCard's first privacy officer, um, helping MasterCard uh, build their privacy program, uh, which then eventually expanded into more of information governance uh, with the with the firm recognizing that uh, it wasn't just about personal data, it was about that all data needed to be governed. But then with the advent of the GDPR, as we were building more and more systems to uh, ensure uh, data risk management and data governance, as well as an understanding of our, our data systems. And MasterCard has been a data company, I think, uh, in some ways for, for almost its entire life. We realized that we needed somebody who was focused on the data. And so I took that job in 2018, just as uh, the GDPR was kind of coming into full force. And uh, one of my uh, my teammates, we promoted into the role of the chief privacy officer, and I took on the chief data officer role. What's really fun about data is that it continually changes. It changes in its context. It changes in its challenges. Um, it's changing um, our our planet, and uh, it's endlessly innovative, right? So it's one of the reasons that I find it endlessly fascinating. And in financial services, doubly so, um, right? It's uh, one of the areas that is super sensitive to all of us. Um, and so you need to handle it with care. Um, and so all of that, I think, um, provides for a really rich, rich job experience um, and uh, intellectual experience as well. Yes, absolutely. And so well said. So endlessly fun and handle with care. And you were very humble, as many CDOs are, you know, saying, yeah, there's a, many great CDOs out there. But but why I say it's so impactful is because of the impact financial services has on every citizen's life. And yet you pioneered some of this or brought together people around privacy at a time when there is a lot of distrust about the ways that organizations use data. So tell us a little bit about Truada, or how do I pronounce it? Truada? No, Truada's and right. Truada. <laughs> Truada's okay. Right. Tell us a little bit about this. Sure. So one of the requirements of the GDPR uh, is anonymization, full anonymization. That was defined very, very differently and much more uh, protectively of the data than I think most organizations were doing uh, prior to that requirement. And so not all organizations need to keep an identifiable data set and an anonymized data set. And so what many, many organizations were doing were taking the identifiable data set, hashing, you know, creating a hashed ID or some other ID, stripping off most of the identifiers, and then creating uh, what, we, what they called at the time an anonymized data set, because it didn't have your name or your email address or anything else. And it would have taken some doing to reverse engineer it, right? It, you, it could be done with a massive amount of computing power, but okay. Uh, the GDPR actually was saying, no, no, it has to be completely anonymized, meaning it could not be re reverse engineered. But in addition, that organizations shouldn't be able to hold both data sets. Well, that's a very, very tall order. And when we saw this, we said, well, then we need to really be thinking creatively because MasterCard um, had always had a commitment to privacy. Um, had a commitment to doing the right thing with our, our data analytics. And so we had been using a pseudonymized database or what was then going to be called pseudonymized. I remember having to learn how to pronounce the word pseudonymized yes, as it became I, I was... <laughs> part of the vernacular. But um, so we, we, we developed the, the concept of a data trust, which is what Truata 
is. It is an organization that was actually created to ensure compliance with anonymization, legal anonymization requirements. And it's a fully independent organization. It is built as a trust organization so that its very purpose is um, anonymization compliance. It holds data completely separately. It has its own anonymization solution. We have given it all of our identifiable data to anonymize. Um, we first kind of do the pseudonymization solution as we hand it to them. So they never see our personalized data. They then take that data, fully anonymize it. And then we get back the ability through a series of dashboards and tools to actually do all of our data analytics that we were doing on the quote pseudonymized set. It's a very robust solution. But when we were developing it, we actually went to regulators in Europe. We went to uh, lots of uh, data protection authorities across Europe um, to talk through the development of Truata. And so Truata is on, it's located in Ireland. We had to look for uh, uh, jurisdictions that had a kind of trust law because it's a Commonwealth type of idea uh, based on you know English law. At the time, Brexit was coming up, so we didn't want to put it in the UK. We needed to put it in a jurisdiction where MasterCard has, uh, and we have our MasterCard labs in Ireland, so that made sense. And so um, it's been uh, doing really great work for us and for some other companies as well. Uh, so that was part of the journey to being the data officer. But I think, you know, the point on privacy and trust, um, it wasn't just in developing a trust. I think one of the, the things that we realized early on as we were even doing privacy by design and as we have developed our data practices at MasterCard, one of the points on trust is that you know, at the end of the day, all data, and we're more of a B two B to C company than than some others with a very C brand, right? Um, that data really impacts individuals, and so you really need to understand uh, that you need um, individually centric design principles, right, around data. That what you do impacts people, and if you understand how impactful your your product, your solution, your service is going to be, right, both positive and negative. It makes for better design decisions along the way as you do product and solution designing. And so I do think that that goes to then improving the trust equation between individuals and the organizations that they choose to do business with. There's so much to unpack there, Joanne. And let me let me take a couple points. So when you're anonymizing data, and I often... I. I tend to think more of the good that can be done with this data in financial services. Uh, but then I also look beyond, you look at in health, in healthcare, yes. there have been attempts to anonymize the data. But now as we combine data from multiple data sources, what we once thought was anonymized may get re-identified. Yes. Yes, right, absolutely. Right. So, so, how do, so Truata yeah. was not set up to take data from multiple sources, although they are their own separate entity. And I know um, I'm a board of, um, board advisor to them. So I do know that they're obviously looking at that as a privacy enhancing technology company, right, as an organization. But let's talk about anonymization. Anonymization is a science unto itself, right? We, we talk a lot about AI, but anonymization, right, is, is a game of, I call it name that tune, right? So um, you can anonymize a data set for sure, right? As long as you are very, very careful about um, that data set and how you use it, you then can use that data set to create insights. But the minute you reveal that anonymized data set and allow anybody else to link up any other data set to it, it may become identifiable, right? By adding other data elements to any individual line of anonymized 
information, you can potentially, by adding other geo-demographic, right, Geo geographic or demographic information, you may make it identifiable again inadvertently. And that's one of the challenges, I think, in health data. And again, I'm not an expert in health data, but I certainly talk to enough of my colleagues who, who are in that field, right? Health data has one of the challenges and, and, and one of also the opportunities, right, is that when the innovation that you want to do it with health data, right? We all, we've just lived through COVID, right? We all wanted solutions for COVID. The reuse of that information often requires adding more information that may make it identifiable. And so you have to be really careful about how you do that work. Right, right. And I think some of this gets to your background in, in privacy, but also your comment, individually centric design principles. And I think this is really important. Some Sometimes some of the trust has been lost for two reasons. One, there's not a good understanding of data by citizens, or let's say in, in the world, we have poor data literacy. But secondly, the way sometimes data has been used to harm marginalized groups, whether it's aggressive credit lend lending practices or things like this. How do we overcome both of those? Let's talk about data literacy first, and then we can talk about what I, what I call the data divide, right? They are part and parcel of what are some of the data challenges I think that we are now trying to address as a society. So I think data literacy is on the rise. Let me, let me first say that. I think that the next generation of consumers and individuals that are going to navigate our data, our digital society are going to be more and more data savvy. I think you, you see that in your kids. I think you see that in you know, high school students and, and college students and, and young adults that are, that are just starting their careers because they're digital natives, right? And that's a very big difference than the people that developed the technology that was ingesting an awful lot of data, that was processing a whole lot of data. They were enthralled with the technology and weren't necessarily thinking about the data that was being processed. I can remember during parts of my privacy career talking to technology experts and them saying to me, Joanne, why do you care about the data? The data is really just zeros and ones. And trying to explain to them, that's absolutely true when you reduce it to the code in the system and how it's reading it, but that it represents, right? It, that, that, that the data is actually my bank balance, right? Or my health record, or it's my, you know, the detail um, in my phone of the locations that I've been to all day. And that that data has implications for me as an individual, and then can have implications for groups of individuals, depending upon the conclusions that are drawn upon that information, right? And that systems have made it easier for us to process vast amounts and to come to conclusions, and it gets harder for the individual to intervene, right? That, that's the problem we're having. So it used to be everything was paper-based, right? And we would go to the bank and we would know the teller and the, and the, the, the vice chairman and you know, president who sat at the desk and we would have a relationship. And so if something was wrong, we had an easy recourse. While those people still exist in the branch, right? It's harder even for them to know what's happened with your data because it's just, it, there's so much processing that's gone on. I think the goal of trying to make it more transparent and make sure that organizations understand what they're doing with data from an individual's perspective, it doesn't mean they have to track my data 
individually. It means they have to understand what their systems are doing with the data so that they can explain it to me. I think many of the laws around data access that have that have popped up, whether the GDPR or California or elsewhere, is an attempt to try to allow individuals to gain access to that data and that information. Now, does everybody understand that yet? No. But do I think the younger generations do? Yes, I do. And do I think we're going to see things like data wallets and data dashboards for individuals in the future? Yes, I do think that will come. Is it going to be easy? No. But I think that that's going to be something of interest to parts of society. Yeah, I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there, but it, I, I still think we have a lot of work to do. Oh, great. To educate. I mean, I think it's hard for the elderly. You know, I watch cyber criminals prey on the elderly, right? I have an elderly mom and I mean, I'm her daughter, so she knows, right? But she's, and she tells all her friends, right? And then I get all the stories. She's like, I can't believe they're posing as the IRS, Joanne. And I can't believe they're posing as the social security administration, right? And her friends, you know, and then, you know, or, or their grandchildren, right, that they're in trouble and they're right. They want, you know, them to wire money. Right. All of those type of things. Right. But that all of those things we have to add into the data literacy component and we have to make it real for people for how it affects their lives. Right. Otherwise, it's too overwhelming. Right. You can't ask somebody to learn something that is not connected to how they're actually living either. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so it's overwhelming for citizens, but it also remains overwhelming for many business people, your business stakeholders. You just referred to them saying, well, Joanne, why, why do you care? It's just zero. Well, that was a while months. ago and it wasn't, at, <laughs> it isn't today. That was, uh, that was okay. actually many years ago. <laughs> well, then you're very lucky, but so many, so think of many CDOs who, who listen to this, they're even still trying to justify the business case for their job, what is their role? And we think about the business value side that data brings, touching every part of an organization, really. And one of the connections that you and I share in this space, Randy Bean and Tom Davenport, the New Vantage Partners, their annual survey the number of CDOs that really have, let's say, whether it's a revenue or a business value contribution responsibility is still very low, like 12 to 14%. What are your thoughts on this? Or how does the CDO still in a less savvy organization articulate the value of this? It's a great question, right? And I think it goes to the fact that many CDO jobs were originally created, um, as we would say, defensively, right? They were created as risk management positions. They were because either of the financial crisis, GDPR, some thrust from a risk management perspective, usually, or expense management, right? Some an organization needed to understand what data they had. They had uh, an audit. Something happened that made the ability for the organization to understand their data assets important. And so then what happened was many early CDOs began to organize the data, right? We got, got into the whole idea of data management, right? So I'm going to classify my data. I'm going to organize the data. 
But if it wasn't connected to a business case and how an organization wants to utilize the data, and sometimes it was, but it was very much the back office uses. It was for financial data. It was for HR data or maybe even legal data, right? It was not really connected to revenue, right? It wasn't connected to the machine of the organization. Now, I had the good fortune uh, that as the privacy officer, we had implemented privacy by design, which meant that all the products and solutions were already being reviewed by my team. Now, it was for a very compliance point of view, right? The switch for me when I became the data officer was really, how do I enable data use for innovation? And that was always part of my job as the privacy officer. My part, my job as the privacy officer was getting to yes, but it was often yes, but you've got to you know, comply here and we have to think about this. I still do a bit of that as the data officer, right? I still have to say, do we have the right data rights? How are we ingesting this data? Where did you get it from? You know, does it have the right consent, right? But my goal as the data officer is to enable business, and I say this all the time and people think I'm crazy, today's business and tomorrow's business. And that's a really tall order. And this is where I think data officers can be super strategic, but it means they have to understand their business and where not only where it is today, but where it's going, right? And in two ways. One, if you bring in the data and you organize it, that's all good. But you need to be reviewing the quality of that information and saying, okay, it's going to be useful for this business line and this business line and this business line. Chances are it's coming in for one of those. But your job is to say, okay, but I'm going to make sure the data management and governance pieces are in place, not just for business line A, but for business line B and C plus where are we going? What are we building next? And I'm going to start building the capabilities that the organization needs before they even know they need it, right? And that's where data, and I'm not talking about a CDAO, I'm just talking about the CDO right now, builds that baseline and kind of builds the track ahead of the train so that by the time the organization wants to innovate and use that data to build another innovation, the data is organized, the data is available, the data is governed, the data is managed, the data quality is done, which is huge for AI. We haven't even talked about AI yet, right? All of that work is done so that the business can just say, oh, I need, and you say, okay, here it is. <laughs> okay, right? That's what a chief data officer needs to do. And it's an incredibly strategic position. And that means though you have to be very connected to today's business strategy, understand tomorrow's business strategy, and you've got to do really great data governance, data management, data, you know, data quality, as well as build the systems with your enterprise architecture to navigate that world and think ahead of, well, where's the market going? And are there also plays that you can be providing there? So that's what a great one does. Now, it's really hard to get the buy-in, but if you can explain it, I do think it's really valuable, but it's got to be connected to what the company's doing. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Joanne. So that's not crazy. That to me is is the difference between, well, if you want to call it CDO 4.0, as as my friend Mario at um, Gartner likes to say, or it's really the offense versus the defense. Exactly. And you've got to know what your data scientists want to do. Like everybody keeps saying, well, it's got to be the CDAO. And I'm like, hmm. You know, the analytic community that you have your data scientists, right? Your AI engineers, right? You need to know what they need for their data, right? You can also be responsible for them, but we have a very federated model because we need data scientists in 
our fraud group, right? They get to use data in the clear. And, our, and now we are, we're into digital identity and navigating that. And that's a different set of scientists. Our open banking folks, different set. So I want those data scientists to be really, really good because our scientists need to understand the data in context. But I have data designers that work right alongside those teams, right? And I, I feel as plugged in as if those teams report directly to me. So I, I don't know. It's an interesting conundrum about where this job should go. Um, but I do think it's a little bit just like data. It's very contextual for every organization. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing you said that I think is really important to make the point is that to anticipate the future where you want to innovate, you have to understand the business strategy. Absolutely. You have to understand the business strategy. And your job is to see that business strategy from a data perspective. And I've, I've said that, we, you know, we've been doing some acquisitions lately, and I've had the good fortune of meeting the CEOs of those organizations. And it's what I say to them, right, as I'm doing the introduction, that I see the organization from a data perspective, which is a little funky, right? Because, you know, other people are seeing it from the P&L, right? They're, or they're seeing it from an HR and people capabilities, right? Or, you know, our, our you know, general counsel is going to see it from legal risk. But I'm envisioning it from all the data that's coming in, what, what we're, or the capabilities that we've purchased and where we can leverage them around the organization, or if we have to build new data pipes to bring in their data into MasterCard and what the reuse of that's going to be and what we need to build, right? So that's what I'm focused on, right? Which I also have to say to them, please prioritize me and this process appropriately. But oftentimes it is key to actually the success of that acquisition, right? It's like, we have to hurry up and do that because otherwise we're not going to achieve the business success, right? The success of why we did the actual acquisition, right? Or the future of that business case. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just chuckling because you said you see everything as as a business. No, 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 no. I'm the same. You give me a business problem and I'm already picturing what data can we bring to bear. Well, so it's OK. The, the true story is when I was first became the privacy officer at MasterCard in the law department. Right. We had offices you know, before open floor plan. Right. So I had an office. Right. And um, they would give you artwork. <laughs> And so they said, well, like, what kind of artwork? I said, I want a whiteboard. And they were like, what? I was like, I want a whiteboard. <laughs> I want artwork. I want a whiteboard. Because <laughs> even as the privacy officer, all I wanted to draw was data flows. Right? And I still think that way, right? So it's kind of, I think that's part of how my brain just works. And maybe yeah. it's part of my design background too, but I'm very visual. So I'm always drawing boxes. I want to come back to the design background, but you also mentioned a number of acquisitions that MasterCard has done in the AI and machine learning companies. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do you assim assimilate these as part of provisioning the data, but also within the organization? Some we pull all the way in and some of them we let kind of be on their own. It all depends on what we've acquired. So I won't get into all the, the hairy details, but um, first of all, it's, it's really wonderful to be part of a growing company. Let me first say that, um, right? It, I, I have a really great uh, fortune of working for a company that we have a really great core business and we've done really fabulous things. But I think that what we're, the capabilities that we're adding um, and have added over the past few years is, is just really fun. From an acquisition perspective, I think that you really have to recognize what, what is it that you're bringing in and are you attaching it to some other greater thing? 
uh, you know, organizationally, or um, is it going to be a standalone area that you're going to leverage? And it also depends on its customer profile, right? Um, we've done acquisitions where, depending upon their customer profile, um, we've had to really tread carefully because um, they may be doing work for organizations that would prefer them to stand alone, right? They don't want to be completely absorbed by MasterCard. But we also, though, make sure that the company feels part of MasterCard. We have, um, you know, at MasterCard, we talk about three different cues. We talk about your IQ, your EQ, your emotional quotient, and then your DQ, your decency quotient. Kind of how do you want to be remembered in life? And so we try to make employees really feel part of the family, right? And make sure that our, so our AI acquisitions are no different to make sure that those people are interacting with the rest of the data science community, the rest of the data community. Just last week, we had Andrew Ang come and speak at MasterCard. We made sure that all of our folks knew, right? We had we had almost 2,000 MasterCard employees join virtually for that interview, which, you know, in this day and age when it with Zoom fatigue was was great. It was great fun. And people are still, you know, talking and emailing and talking about it. So doing those type of things, I think, really makes the difference. And then also our data responsibility principles, I think, have really helped us in ways that we didn't no, we're going to back in when we launch them, is that it's given us an easy language to work with our acquisitions as well as our whatever our traditional employees. I don't know what do you call those people that are not acquired in talking about our data philosophy, figuring out how it works at a new firm when they're coming in, right? What does it mean in their business? How will they apply it, right? Bringing that to life. All of that has really helped from a data perspective navigate, right? Um, what could be challenging. And oftentimes we've used our data principles, even as we've done due diligence to assess, does this firm play really fast and loose with data? Or have they really been kind of in more of that ethical mode and responsible mode in how they've built their business? Because we're much more interested in those organizations because we believe back to where we kind of started this conversation, that responsible data practices engender trust. And if you have trust, you have a sustainable business going forward. If you're not going to have trustworthy practices of any kind, you're just not going to have a sustainable business. Yeah. So it's interesting because many companies in the acquisition space will talk about culture fit. And really you're talking about ethical fit. When you first said DQ, I thought it was going to be data. data. Um, yeah, I know, no. <laughs> but I love decency quotient. I, I really like that. And you are authored an article, Fighting AI Bias, Digital Rights Are Human Rights. So tell us a little bit more about that and, and your reference to the data responsibility imperative. Tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, it's back to this notion that, you know, human-centered design um, is, I, I think, the right idea. Um, and I think we sometimes get lost in the volumes of data and in the, how do I say this, the novelty and the innovation opportunity that data represents. And that we forget that the data represents people or attributes about individuals oftentimes, right? Or that ultimately, even when we are doing econometric studies, right? And we do those, we do a lot of those, that at some point that information will be used to impact someone's life or groups of people's lives, right? And so if we're not mindful of that, um, what are we really about? And so I think that in this data and digital age, we, I think we're getting better now actually than even when I wrote the article. But I think we, we have an opportunity right now to really recenter ourselves on 
what kind of society do we want to emerge digitally? And if COVID hasn't taught us to like reprioritize our priorities, right? Uh, what was really important when we all went through shutdown, right? It was our family, it was food, it was shelter, it was our pets, right? It was our kids, right? It, what did we miss most? You, you ask anybody, almost everybody universally says hugs, right? Um, yes. Right? I mean, I mean, <laughs> I'm a hugger. I'm yes. a hugger too. It's like, but be, right? I mean, what did we miss most? We missed each other, right? It, it wasn't that, oh, I miss money and prestige and power. And it, it's like, this is what I miss. And I, but technology though, played a huge role in, in allowing us to stay connected and us being able to see our elderly parents if they didn't live with us or, or see children that were, you know, in another part of the world, right? And so we, I don't want to dismiss that, but the balance of that is hugely important. And so if we can keep in our minds as we go ahead and create the next fantastic product solution and science with data, I just feel that if we can have all of our fabulous professionals in this area, think from every time they begin to design or as part of the design process, what's the impact on people? There will be an impact on somebody. What are the pros and the cons? I do think we will come up with better products, better solutions, ones that are just more encompassing. And And that's a personal belief, but I've seen it come to life and I've seen us kill things. I've seen us adjust things for the better. And so that, that's really where that idea comes from, as well as the fact that I think or individuals have given their data to lots of different organizations, right? And I think over time, they're getting going to get pickier and pickier. Why wouldn't I be, rather give it to an organization that is going to be more careful with my information than one that is going to be kind of just laissez-faire or free-for-all? So I do think there's a little bit of a perfect circle with this as well. Yeah. So Joanne, you and I share this hope that we will be more mindful of this, the impact on individuals and the potential harm that may come out of AI. But I want to share with you a headline and a study that just published this week from uh, Pew and the Elon Research Foundation. The headline is... Ethical AI will not see broad adoption by 2030. I read the article, though. Did you read the article? Oh, you did. Yes, yes. And so I'm like, wait, okay, are they scaremongering here? Because the way the survey question was phrased, I think, was not well phrased. And it was that 68% predicted ethical principles intended to support the public good won't be employed. And I think, yeah. I'm happy to talk about this. Absolutely happy to talk about this. I feel like they made it too binary. And I think the headline is a little bit of clickbait, but. Okay, okay. all right. So (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's talk about this because I think ethical, what we're calling ethical AI, and it's a little tricky, this ethics word, right? Because ethics are very, very culturally based. So I prefer responsible and trustworthy AI, right? But we're in the first throes of doing this. So first of all, kudos for all of us who are trying. And at first, we all tried to do it just with governance frameworks, governance frameworks for AI. And that is a first start. And I think that we will see wide adoption of those, all right? What I think people were reacting to, because they, they surveyed pretty good experts. Now, I did not take the survey, but from what I read of the article, what I think the response was about was how we apply that governance framework and how difficult it is to do 
in practice. And I think that's where people were saying, oh, no, we're never we're not going to have this. This is hard work. And I agree. It's very hard work. But I don't I think the question is, will we have moved the needle? And the answer I want to give is absolutely we're moving the needle every day. We move the needle to get better and better at this. And I also think we have AI that can learn from this, which is also going to help us along the way. So what what am I talking about? So first of all, data is food for AI. Okay. That's not my quote. That's Andrew Ang's quote. And I love it. I'm like, oh my God, I love that quote. Right. So why is that important? First of all, we have to understand that our data sets need to be ready for whatever problem we're trying to solve with AI. Right. And that is one of the things that we did not spend enough time on in the first wave of AI. We were just feeding yeah. it anything. So right? the gaps. Feeding and, it. And this is exactly data is biased. Right. To start with, how right. we collect it is biased. how we collect yeah. it. And it's not because we intentionally made it biased. It's just that the data sets that were available to start machine learning on whatever was available, the scientists were using to see if the algorithms and the artificial intelligence was actually working in the way it was intended. But now we're we are at the point of trying to rely on the results and we're realizing we have to do better with the data sets because oftentimes it's missing geographies. It's missing women. It's missing people of color. It's missing people of of different attributes. And therefore, the machine will learn what we feed it. Right. So we're going to have to get better at assessing. Do we have the right information that we have fed for the problems we're trying to solve, right? Because otherwise we will get an answer that is only partially right. And then we'll get reinforced as other, sorry, algorithmic learning will learn from those results, right? And we know that that amplification is endless. So that's one of the challenges that I think they were talking about a little bit. Now, however, we now know this and we, so that's step one. Step two, We also know that in an AI governance framework, we have to look at how the algorithms are crafted because there might be bias in the questions and the algorithmic equations themselves, right? In the way we frame the question or in just the simplest of things. So a colleague of mine uses this example and it's beautiful. You're translating the English and Spanish dictionaries, right? So you just feed it all the Spanish and all the English and you get your results. The problem is the pronouns in Spanish are el and la. So certain things are going to come up as masculine and feminine, and the machine's going to learn that. So el doctor is always going to be a man if you don't help the machine understand that that is not what you want the conclusion to be, right? Again, we just need thoughtfulness. It's going to take a lot of work, which is why I think the headline is right in one way. We're not going to be perfect by 2025. But are we going to be better by 2025? Oh, my gosh, yes, right? My hope is that more and more companies and organizations and academics, right, and governments are beginning to understand that this science, because it is a whole new field, needs this human intervention now so that we can adjust before that amplification that I talked about really takes off and creates permanent digital ghettos and divides that are hard for us data designers and scientists to fill in, right? That's where I think that article is going. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Well, so in battling this digital divide and even, let's say, the financial divide, one of the other efforts that MasterCard and you were involved in that I really like is the MasterCard Center 
for inclusive growth. Yes. And this group does a lot yeah. of work My around data for good. Yes. Okay. She's, she's great. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that. The Center for Inclusive Growth, gosh, I, how old is it now? Um, it must be like seven years old, eight years old, came out of uh, a philosophy that we wanted to do more philanthropically. And, you know, we were like many organizations, we supported lots of causes, we, we put our money behind it, and our people did volunteering. But we recognize that as a financial company and the role we play in kind of as a network and as a connector, we could do more. And so that we, we created the, the center, I think it's around seven or eight years ago. Don't I'm not perfect on that. You can look that up. You can Google it. And so uh, Shamina came in to run it and she's fabulous. And as we began to look at what we could, put, what assets we could put into the center, we also realized that our technology was one of our assets, right? Our, all the connections that we have. And then ultimately Shamina came to me um, along with Walt McNee, who was our vice chair at the time and said, um, Joanne, what do you think about our data? And they really, and I was the privacy officer at the time. We didn't have a data officer. And they expected me to say no. And I said, Let's think about this. How could this be done? Because it was really important work. And there was a whole sector of kind of social impact at the time that was completely kind of a data desert, right? Nobody was really thinking about how can data be useful and used to help kind of, at the time we were calling them the underbanked, right? But people who really were excluded from financial services. And I said, you know, this isn't really any different than doing kind of econometric work that we do. It's just how do we you know, aggregate, not obviously anonymize, but then use aggregations of data to begin to provide insights. And so we started doing that work. And then we came up with some so many interesting programs, everything from kind of grantees, people who would come in and be data scientists with our data scientists, um, fellows, data fellows who then had a long-term relationship with MasterCard so that as they came up with ways that our data might be powerful, they could work with us on different topics of interest, like neural networks and, and all sorts of interesting things. My job in that was to make sure we came up with the right data practices to protect our data. Because I mean, look, our cardholders and all of our customers, you know, we have a responsibility as a fiduciary, a steward, if you will, to make sure that, you know, we're not just disclosing data, but to create the right analytic sandboxes and environments where this type of work can be done, but that we can also then use, utilize information, right, to, to really be a benefit. And so the center has done just some fabulous work. Um, out of that work, um, I've started working, you know, with a lot of academic institutions and civil society groups on data sharing, right? And the challenges of data sharing on large scale. And so it's a passionate project of mine. I work with people like uh, Stefan Verholst of the NYU GovLab, Danny Weitzner at MIT, um, uh, Nicole Primer at the OECD. There's just some so many fabulous people that are interested in trying to solve this because, well, we can do it one to one, right? We can figure that out. It's the many to many problem of we call us data donors, right? Because we're the companies that have the data. And we don't really donate data, so it's a bad phrase, but you know, we have the ability to give insights. But then there's such an ecosystem that needs to be built to get it down to kind of those NGOs and charitable organizations. And how do you then also get them the data science help, which is where our partnership with data.org and the Rockefeller Foundation came in. So we've just been doing all this fabulous work to try to fill in the gaps of what we call the data divide to address financial inclusion. And it's really expanded even beyond that, just inclusive growth now is what we call it. Because 
we recognize that there's so many different ways, even working with governments, working in public-private partnerships, as well as kind of in just um, in these other initiatives that we can make a difference as a company. And it's part of this decency quotient, and but it's also kind of a way that we leverage some of our commercial work into this other practice. We get ideas in the sustainable area that we then you know, use in our commercial practice, but it's very, very rewarding work. It really is. Yeah. So it's nice to get the backstory on how that evolved. I, I first came across it, I think it was six, six and a half years ago now when I was first starting to formally write and research about data for good. And I saw some of the impact on looking even at things where e-bikes are being rented, the credit card transactions there and how that's impacting certain cities revitalization projects. So uh, great, great to see the work expand there. I want to pivot, Joanne, your background, legal privacy, but you're also an interior designer. (laughs) (laughs) And yet you still went for the whiteboard. So I'm trying to uh, piece that dot together. Sure. How'd that come about, right? (laughs) Well, it's almost like the two sides of the brain there, which, um, how does that um... influence your role? Yeah. (laughs) So I became a designer later in life, so after law school, ah, believe it or not. Okay, so, but you've been running this your business for so many years. So when I was younger, I wanted to go to art school rather than like an academic high school. My parents were like, no. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that, you know, it, so it was kind of a dream deferred, right? Okay. And they were like, you can go back and do that anytime. Okay, sure. You go into business and then life takes off. But um what happened actually was I, I was working at American Express, as you mentioned, on 9-11, and, um, which was a very impactful event. We, American Express is building, for those who don't know, is right across the street from the World Financial Center, uh, from the World Trade Center. We were in the World Financial Center, and I was there that day, and it was, it was as horrible as anybody wants and needs to imagine. But on um, January uh, 2nd of 2002, I was in, we were, we were all scattered in all these different buildings um, and I was in the office. It was very, very quiet that day. And I don't normally make New Year's resolutions because I'm, I'm kind of the person that if I'm going to do something, I'm just going to go do it. But I was thinking that, you know, that there were approximately 3000 people that weren't around to make New Year's resolutions. And that just by a difference of one building over, right, um, I might not be around. So it, was there anything that I hadn't finished that I wanted to do at that time that I should make a move undo? And so I literally Googled, you know, interior design schools and found the New York School of Interior Design. And I said, OK, I'm going to sign up for a few classes and let's see what happens. But to do so, I had to get my transcripts from my college and law school. I don't think my law school's ever recovered from (laughs) my design school. Maybe they have. I don't know. And it was fun. It was it was really, really fun. I mean, it was it was a lot. Believe it or not, it was a lot of work. I mean, I would go and take classes at night and on weekends. And I can remember like my very first class was historical styles. And I, I studied everything. I knew everything you could possibly want to know. And then they put up like a chair and they were like, so what style is this? And I was like, you mean you don't want to know who the king was and you don't want to know who the queen was and you don't want to know exactly the dates of the period? I mean, like, yeah, you know, this is a law student going to just yeah. like school. Oh. Um, but I really enjoy it. And um, so I opened up my own practice, hung a shingle out. And uh, so um, but I don't do a whole lot now. I'm, I'm a little busy, but um, but I have in the past done 
uh, commercial work um, for for different organizations, real estate offices, and, um, and and different kind of commercial enterprises, small small businesses mostly, as well as um, residential work. So yeah, I can draft. I can you know do your kitchen and your bathroom design, and I've certainly designed my own home. So. <laughs> Well, and I suspect your whiteboarding then is probably bordering on artwork, but <laughs> I don't know if it's artwork, but you know, certainly I obviously I'm a visual person. So I think yeah. that, I think that's how I think. Well, Joanne, you you just shared such a transformative story, but I always like to end with one of two questions. I'll let you I'll let you decide if you think back in the last year, what made you just totally laugh out loud? Because I think we need to laugh more. Or what are you most grateful for? Oh, God, I, I try to practice gratitude every day. Um, I think that that's just part of how I was um, raised. My laugh out, story, uh, out loud story is I just got a puppy and she oh. makes me laugh almost every day. Right. Um, and okay. right now she um, she's, she's at the challenging phase. She's just turned uh, what, she's 12 weeks today. And so um, yesterday she decided to that her challenging moment was to stand on my lap and stare me down. And, um, and it made me laugh out loud last night because I thought, oh, honey, so many greater have than you have tried. <laughs> and uh, I was laughing with her and she eventually calmed down. She's very, very kind of docile this morning because we we had it. We hugged it out, actually. I just kind of hugged Aww. her and waited. But she was none too happy. She kept wanting down. And I was like, no, you're not getting down because you just want to. And this is a power struggle. But I was laughing. So it was it was a, it was a good moment. That's beautiful. So what kind of dog? She's a Labradoodle. Uh, she's a, a mini Labradoodle. Labradoodle. Yeah. Okay. Aurora. All right. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to have to share pictures. I'm I'm from the Bernadoodle side. <laughs> oh, there you go. We'll, we'll, we'll email back and there forth. They're go. cousins of a sort. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joanne, thank you so much for being on the Data Chief. I, I feel like we could have spent another half hour and I feel like I should say this was priceless, but <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> I don't know if that's too cheesy, though. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's allowed, but <laughs> very nice to meet you and really, really a pleasure to chat today. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. Join her on LinkedIn Live the first Thursday of each month for a live version of The Data Chief, where she'll share best practices and take your questions live. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. Finding insights in your company's data doesn't have to be complicated. All you need is search. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.